Welcome to the latest edition of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. And we have a really uh, special podcast today. We have two authors who've written a book called Just Action, and it's Richard and Leah Rothstein. And this book is about uh, Richard Rothstein actually wrote a book called The Color of Law previously. And that book really just breaks down how the government, federal, state, local, and private, but really how government has had a huge hand in creating segregated neighborhoods across um, municipalities across the U.S. And that this was not by accident, it was by design. It was not de facto, but it was de jure. But it still impacted, obviously, people's lives across the U.S. One of the books that I read growing up that had a profound impact on me because I grew up in New York City was the book The Power Broker, which talks about this, you know, one of the stories is the creation of the Cross Bronx Expressway that just destroyed decimated neighborhoods in the Bronx and how, you know, government can use different actions and tools to create segregation, to create uh, neighborhoods that are uh, what people say less desirous, more desirous. Um, and so that's something that that has happened in the color of the law. But once that book was written, I think both authors were moved by the fact that, you know, the murder of George Floyd the uh, Black Lives Matters protests, there's a huge upswelling of racial recognition in this country of things that have gone wrong. And there's a big movement to protest, to get on the streets, to march. But what else? What else can people do? A lot of times people are kind of paralyzed by too many choices or not sure where to put their action. And so this book, this latest book, has really been focused on what can people do to do that. So I really appreciate both Leah and Richard to join us today. What I'm going to have them do is what I do always on this podcast is having guests tell their origin story. So I'm going to ask Leah to go first and then Richard, but tell me, you know, what is it that brought you to where you are today? Like what brought you to write this book? What brought you to care about this issue so much? You know, what places, people's memories, events happened that brought you to where you are? So Leah, I would love to have you introduce yourself and tell us that story. Sure. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having us. Ironically, my origin story has to do with our other guest, my dad. <laughs> I grew up in a household where both of my parents were activists in the civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam War movement, early women's movement. I grew up sort of um, knowing that if you want to see change in the world, you have to be a part of making it happen. I also come from a Jewish family where, you know, our sort of generational kind of um, understanding of our place in the world has a lot to do with figuring out our belonging and safety and sort of we're not safe unless everyone is safe. Um, so that's sort of the overarching kind of story of me. And I, um, after college, became a community organizer and um, worked on local issues here in Oakland, California, around police accountability and housing and environmental justice, a lot of racial justice issues. Um, and then had a short stint as a union organizer and then got a degree in public policy because I wanted to sort of try to do more. Organizing is, um, you know, the most effective way of making change and it can be frustrating. So I wanted some more, um, I don't know, currency behind my uh, skills so that I could uh, have a bigger impact. And then I worked in housing policy and community development policy and some on criminal justice reform. And in that time, my dad wrote the book, The Color of Law, had a huge impact on the country in terms of the way we talk about how we came to be a racially segregated society. And I um, was one of the people who asked him, what can we do about it now? Now that we're reckoning more um, honestly with our history, how can we begin to change these very entrenched patterns of how we live? I didn't know, even with my housing policy background and organizing background, it didn't feel very achievable. Um, but then he invited me to help him write a book about it. And in the research of that found that it was actually, there's actually a lot that we can do. Um, and so that, that's sort of how I got to this project. Wonderful. Yeah. I remember watching an interview you did, uh, with your dad at the MLK library and how you both left writing this book, feeling more hopeful than you felt starting it. So I think that's something I would love to talk a little bit about later. But now we'll switch to Richard. And obviously your story overlaps with your daughter's story. But tell us your story. How did you end up doing this work? Well, I'll, I'll um, 
try to be brief to, because there are lots we have to talk about, but I was a writer about education policy, a journalist. Uh, and I came to understand that the most serious problem facing American publication, public education today was segregated schools. I did a lot of study on this. And I concluded that the reason we have uh, an achievement gap between black and white children is not because of failing schools, as the conventional story would have it, but because so many African-American children, particularly from low-income families, uh, come to school with serious social and economic disadvantages that impede their ability to learn. And um, I thought it was one thing if a child comes to school uh, in poor health or um, with inadequate nutrition uh, and so many other uh, challenges that the children face that impede their ability to learn, but it's another thing entirely if entire schools are filled with children with one or more of these uh, really serious challenges that uh, make them uh, on average, and it's only, we're talking about averages, on average, uh, less uh, capable of achieving the children who come to school in good health, well-rested, uh, in secure families. And uh, we call those schools where we concentrate children like that segregated schools. I realized that the schools are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. So I decided that the neighborhood segregation was an educational problem. I wasn't originally planning to look into this uh, as a housing issue, uh, but I figured I had to figure out uh, why were these neighborhoods so segregated. And so I began to look into it and uh, soon realized that the, the myth that they were segregated by accident, by private discrimination, was just that, a myth. And that's how I came to write The Color of Law, documenting the many federal, state, and local policies that created what is, in effect, an apartheid society in this country today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the biggest things that helped me, that had an impact on my life, was books around educational um, inequity. You know, uh, the books around, like, like Amazing Grace, Jonathan Kozel, uh, I was thinking about, I was, I want to say mired, but I was in a previous career doing technology, working at Microsoft and startups. And when the bubble burst in 2001, 2002, I kind of was faced with a realization, like, what do I really want to do? What impact do I want to have on life? And I was looking, actually going back to New York to do the New York Teaching Fellows work. And I read their reading, summer reading requirements. And that's where really, I maybe radicalized me. You know, I thought about my immigrant background. I thought about the the things that my parents gave up to be in this country for education and what a huge lever that was. But you're right, Richard, like schools are not failing. Neighborhoods are failing because they're segregated and this is not by accident. This is on purpose. And I think that's what you've drawn out brilliantly in the color of law. Um, and then your new book that just, you know, it's come out is called just action, which is really, what do we do that? What do we do now? Like how do we actually create action? And here at Civic Commons, one of the things that we've really been pushing as a change maker is the power of belonging, right? The power of relationships, the power of people seeing that they're connected together and that we're not individual actors. And I want to quote something from the first chapter of this book. And it says, uh, as Tanika Johnson's, Johnson's map twins, the Presbyterian interracial dialogue members and the Montgomery travelers have learned. Developing meaningful relationships that cross the boundaries of racially segregated neighborhoods is not impossible. As the following pages describe, to move from relationship building to action, groups will then need to educate themselves about their community segregation and the policies, practices, and players responsible. And I want to kind of focus on that middle section, that this is not impossible. And how do we move from relationship building to action, which you actually delineate in your book? But I want to focus on the power of relationship building. You know, can you talk a little bit more about how important that is? And if there's anything that you've picked up in terms of tips or success stories in, the, in the, that ability to create relationships that you want to maybe draw out more. And I can address that to uh, Leah first and then Richard, if you want to follow up. Sure. Well, in Just Action, we, you know, the whole book is premised on the 
argument that we need an activated civil rights movement to begin to advocate for the changes on the local level that can challenge and redress segregation. Now, we can't build that movement unless we have groups in our local communities that are educated and connected and, you know, organized to, do, to make that kind of change and, and uh, do that advocacy. And those groups, they need to be biracial and multi-ethnic. They need to be led by both whites and blacks in order to have, um, you know, the lived experience of segregated African-American people from segregated African-American communities and the political um you know, the political power that whites have in this country, uh, those groups need to have both of those representations in those groups. And to create those groups, we need to sort of take more intentional action to create these biracial cross-race relationships because we live in segregated communities. So we don't naturally come into social contact necessarily with people of other races by, you know, going to the grocery store or the park or dropping our kids off at school. So the, the quote that you just read has a few examples that we gave of groups around the country that took these intentional actions to create explicitly biracial groups to build relationships across um, segregated communities. And um, just real quickly to describe the Tanika Johnson example, it's a great example where she took the map of Chicago that's laid out on a perfect grid. So she folded the map, map in half and homes on the white side of town sat perfectly on top of homes on the African-American side of town. Same numbers of the north and south side of the same street. Took photographs. She's a photographer and artist. So she took photographs of those homes to show sort of a visual representation of segregation in that city. And then introduced herself to the residents of the homes and asked if they wanted to meet what she called their map twin, the house that was on the perfect, you know, opposite side of town in the segregated other race side of town. And most of them said yes, and they met each other and they toured each other's neighborhoods and they developed social relationships and realized that they had a lot in common. Their neighborhoods were very different. They then went on to form block twin groups. So this is just, it's an example. It's a clever example of, of a way to do this, but um, just to show that it's not impossible that people can come together and build some social capital that they can then use to uh you know, activate these committees that can advocate for change in their local communities. And that's an essential first step to doing all of the sort of strategies and policy change that we write about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I think, you know, as human beings, we're very, we're actually built genetically to want to be in community with one another, you know, from our earliest uh, histories being in small tribes and groups. And there's the idea of like, everyone takes care of everyone else especially very popular and powerful in our native cultures here in the, in North America. Uh, so I appreciate that, that reminder, Richard, anything you want to add to that? Or is there another example that you want to pull out? Well, um, first, let me add this, that because as, as you said earlier, and, and we emphasize, there's no uh, political um, support at this point for significant federal policy to redress uh, segregation and the uh, enormous social, educational, and health inequalities that residential segregation creates. But once the federal government had set up the segregated system in collaboration with local governments as well, but the federal government was the main mover in creating segregation. Once it set it up, it's sustained and reinforced by local programs and policies. So there's actually an enormous amount that we can do to make a big dent in segregation with local action, with organized groups. But and this is this is uh, the connection to the question you're asking. African Americans, who are the primary victims, not the only victims, but the primary victims of this segregation, cannot achieve these victories on their own. It needs a biracial movement to do so. They need white support uh, and participation. Uh, African-Americans aren't numerous enough. Uh, even if they were uh, more numerous, they don't have the political power that's sufficient to make significant changes to the local level. So the movements have to be biracial. And you can't create a biracial movement if blacks and whites don't know each other. So the the... What Leah was describing as essential is a first step. 
in uh, creating the potential of a reinvigorated civil rights movement in a community that's going to take on uh, some of these issues. It's only the first step. Uh, the, the examples that we talk about in the book uh, that you just referred to uh, don't include the next step, which is you need an organizer, somebody with organizing skills to move these groups from the relationship, the biracial relationships, multi-ethnic relationships that exist within them to a, a sophisticated strategy of action to make this change. But the first step uh, has to be that a, a, a reinvigorated civil rights movement can't be as segregated as the problem they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. There was a book I read last year, uh, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us. And that was a really powerful book that reminded me that, you know, it's not just, oh, let's uh, do this because, you know, African-Americans uh, are getting the short end of the stick, but that, you know, when policies impact black people, a lot of times that will bleed into poor white people. And a lot, you know, it's not just them and us or us and them, or this like, you know, bifurcation, but we're, we're created, we're connected as a people and as a society. Um, and there has been machinations that created, you know, these disparate segregated neighborhoods on purpose, you know, to prevent some of this work that happens between people naturally. And so we're just out of practice, I think. And I think sometimes we have to create these bridges, like the artist who took photos and created those twin maps, right? We have to create some type of bridge to help us cross so that we can have those relationships with each other. And then, yes, the next step. How do we actually find the organization and the activation to actually move forward and take that political will and direct it in a powerful way? Um, something we touched on, uh, Richard, and this is going to be to you first, is obviously the federal, you know, the push, the ability to push federal policies right now is really difficult. But local, you know, local, not federal is really the way to impact change. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, when you whenever you two speak, and I've watched a few of these interviews is that these small incremental changes impact each other. And they're kind of like RFK's Ripples of Hope uh, speech. Um, if I can quote from it really quickly, uh, he wrote in Cape Town, it is from num numerous diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lots, lot of others or strikes out against injustice. He sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other form from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest wall of oppression and resistance. Uh, is there a community, uh, Richard, in your mind, in the U.S., that maybe has had many of these tiny ripples that you can see building into a larger uh, collective change? Like, Do you see some of those that type of evolution happening in any particular community in the U.S.? Well, in, in just action, we describe dozens of programs and practices at the local level that are ripe for challenge that uh, sustain segregation. Um, but the, uh, uh, the political power that I was describing that's necessary to do this is not just of a biracial coalition of victims. It is true, as Heather McGee described, that uh, the entire society suffers from segregation. But it's not just uh, uh, whites who um, are uh, uh, affected by uh, income policies or, or uh, lack of resources or bad health care that are needed as allies. In the Black Lives Matter movement, demonstrations that took place after George Floyd was murdered, um, 20 million Americans participated. Uh, they were not only African-American, but whites. Many of them were suburban. Uh, they were uh, urban and suburban. They were uh, black and white, low-income and middle-income families. And uh, when we talk about a, the need for biracial relationships to um, be created as the basis of a new activist movement. We're not just referring to poor people. Uh, Reverend Barber uh, emphasizes uh, bringing uh, white and black 
support people together, that's important. But of those 20 million Americans, there are many white suburbanites who have political influence, who took part in those demonstrations and then went back to their homes and put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns and did nothing further because no organizer knocked on their doors and told them what they could do. Or at least that's one of the reasons. And so one of the things that uh, I think is important to remember is that uh, a biracial movement has to be a cross-class movement as well to be effective. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. That's, um, and you're right. We, you know, William Barber's, you know, the poor people's campaign is definitely uh, a powerful movement, but it, and I like what um, John A. Powell and the other belonging institute talk about when they talk about targeted universalism, right? This isn't just about, you know, the changing the gap, right? But it's because how do we create a better world for everyone? And it's not just poor people, middle-income people, but even at the t- people at the top of the scale, right? How do we create a better unified world for all with the targeted resources towards specific populations? And so I really appreciate the way he delineates that. So Leah, I want to actually talk to you a little bit about something that's happening in Seattle's backyard. There was a bill that was passed originally, HB 1110. And what that does is the state uh, government here has made um, – has pretty much done away for done away with all single family zoning. And that takes precedence over any localized town or city's zoning. It's not all, but it's specifically for population cities of a particular population or higher. Obviously Seattle is one of them. And I used to work in city government, the department of neighborhoods, and one of the big pushes that we had and fights that we had with lots of neighborhood associations in Seattle was this fear that people had, especially in North Seattle, just like any other city, where you know, racially segregated north and south. And there's a lot of white families who were very much against this idea of getting rid of single family zoning. Uh, they used arguments around like neighborhood classification or character or, you know, holding on to the history. I'm sure these are all <laughs> excuses you've heard before. So when this passed, making duplexes, fourplexes, sixplexes legal, it overrides city legislation. But however, this law excludes HOAs. And, you know, like the one that was described in the color of law briefly, uh, William Boeing, he actually created a uh, neighborhood in the north part of Seattle called Blue Ridge. And so places like that, that have these covenants, these, you know, HOAs, they are not forced to do this. So there won't be any duplexes, you know, more dense housing in some of these neighborhoods that are obviously where the, I believe the average home price in Blue Ridge is like $1.3 million, right? So with that said, I'm really excited that this bill passed because I didn't know if that was going to happen, you know, anytime soon. And it's, there was political will, it was pushed through, it was passed. But is there anything that we as community members can do about this ability for HOAs to dodge this? Or is, are we just kind of like, you know, that's the law and we can't do anything about it? Like, what would you say to, to that? Well, I would say going back to the theme of everything we're talking about is, you know, the state passed this law to override city zoning codes. There's no reason it can't also override HOAs. You know, HOAs aren't in a category above cities and counties. So it takes organizing on the part of the residents of Washington state to convince their legislators to get rid of that exemption. And, you know, we talk about, so in Just Action, we discuss upzoning, getting rid of single-family-only zoning as a necessary first step to desegregating these exclusive suburban communities like the HOAs and other parts of Washington State, where the ha- ha- housing prices are high because the zoning, single-family-only zoning, puts a cap on how many houses can be built in that community. Now, that single-family-only zoning uh, was started in the early 1900s to take the place of racialized zoning when that was outlawed. So it has a, a racialized background um, or, or origin where single family only zoning was used to maintain white communities as white by keeping out um, families that couldn't afford the most expensive houses, which were more likely to be African-American families. So if we want to you know, undo that type of segregation, we need to get rid of single family only zoning as a first step. It won't necessarily alone desegregate those communities. We then need preferences and other programs to ensure that African-American families and other families excluded from those communities can access 
the new homes that are built. But as a first step, we do need to allow a variety of home sizes and affordability options in those suburban and exclusive communities. Now to do that, that has happened, you know, now Washington State, Oregon has done it, California, Vermont has been considering a statewide rezoning. So this is happening all over the country and it's always met with opposition from affluent homeowners who use the same arguments you named. It's going to harm our community character, crime will go up, traffic will worsen, the quality, our schools will be overcrowded. These are all sort of thinly veiled racialized comments about what sort of affluent homeowners think will happen to their community if it diversifies. And, um, you know, it hasn't borne out to be true that when more diverse housing is built or multifamily housing is built, that property values go down or the character of a community um, is damaged. And so it takes organizing, talking to our neighbors to convince other residents and voters in that area that that's not a, a valid argument. And that if we really want to increase sort of housing opportunities everywhere in the state, then it has to apply to HOAs as well. And I would suggest that there's likely a lot of residents in those HOA communities that would support this, that that not everybody um, who's vocal about resisting or opposing um, upzoning or multifamily housing, there aren't the only voices out there. Often they're the loudest and they're the most active in planning commission meetings and, and city council meetings, but that's because they feel the most personally impacted. And we haven't, as sort of organizers, found the people who feel personally impacted by having an inclusive community and having a more diverse community and neighborhood. And those people need to show up as well and be just as vocal. And that's how we're going to sort of get to the next step, which is applying this rezoning to all areas of the state. Yeah. Yeah. Richard, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, what, what yeah, sure. Said? Um, yes, I do. Uh, it was not clear to me, Frank, when you described this new Washington state legislation, we're not from Washington state. We're not immersed in the details of every state in the country. Fair but enough. I'm, I'm guessing that the legislation doesn't exclude HOAs from coverage. What it does is that uh, restrictions imposed by those HOAs have to be honored. Okay. Well, if right. that's the case, yeah. then I want to uh, refer back to what Leah just talked about. Those restrictions can be changed by the residents of those communities. In addition to um, writing this book, Just Action, uh, Leah and I have started a, a regular, uh, frequent uh, column on Substack. Uh, it's um, Leah can uh, give you the uh, the place to to uh, sign I up. I just signed up this morning. Free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So we've started a regular column. It's free uh, because The Color of Law was a book of history. Um, I could write the same book today. It wouldn't be any different. The facts are the facts of history. But this book, Just Action, is an ongoing story. And so we're updating it in this regular column. And recently, Leah wrote a column in which she went to a community just like these affluent communities that you're talking about. Uh, and interviewed people who were involved in a fight about whether to um, modify the zoning of their community. The, the opponents of um, diversity, the opponents of, of desegregation, uh, proposed a, um, uh, an initiative that would prohibit any, um, any further, uh, any, any, not just further, any uh, attempt to uh, uh, upzone the single family neighborhoods. And a group of residents of that community organized, they went door to door and they succeeded in defeating that initiative. Surprisingly, it was a predominantly white community. It was affluent. But when they were confronted with the fact that what the, this uh, pro proposition was going to lock in a segregated, non-diverse community that would not benefit them or their children, uh, they defeated it. So it's possible. And uh, I, uh, but it requires organization. Right. Yeah, I, I actually read that article. It was about the teachers who couldn't afford to live in their communities. And then they're, they're utilizing that as the, I think there was actually a line about the people organizing, walking around, looking at house being like, I don't think the people in this house are going to support us. 
But as they were very surprised, as they spoke to people, people cared about teachers, they cared about their kids, they had similar values. And there was actually a lot of people willing to come together more than they thought they would. And they were actually able to defeat it, which is amazing. Um, yeah, well, the interviews that Leah conducted showed that the people are um, open about their desire for a diverse community. And yeah. uh, that was something that they didn't hide. They didn't just, I mean, of course, they based it on the, the fact that teachers couldn't live there and service workers couldn't live there. But they didn't um, just base it on that narrow self-interest. They also were open about the advantages of having a diverse community and they they succeeded in that it's a it's a terrific article i recommend that you read yeah it's uh i i moved to seattle in 1996 and i remember my friends um talked about because they had busing in seattle back then and they try to integrate neighborhoods and schools that way and it was actually defeated by the supreme court and it went through the the whole uh system and I lived in the south end of Seattle for a long time, um, and it was my favorite place to live. And not just because I'm a person of color and there are other people of color, but it was the only place in Seattle coming from New York City. It felt like, oh, here is an integrated neighborhood. There's people from all walks of life, different backgrounds, different religions. You know, there's mosques, there's temples, there's churches. Uh, and the school that I coached at, I coached Ultimate Frisbee for like seven years. And so the coach, I, uh, school I coached at, it was just... 5% white, 95% kids of color, but it was like Asian, black, Latino, lots of kids from mixed races, lots of kids that practice Ramadan, Islam, a lot of kids, you know, it was just a really cool school. And I remember just sitting there being like, this is the way it should be, right? But that whole neighborhood in the South End, it was racially zoned, right? Um, Beacon Hill was racially zoned. That's where Japanese Americans live. The Central District that was racially zoned, that's where African Americans can live. Um, but yeah, you're right. This is people that get a taste of integrated living and being in communities of, of color and, and and more diverse communities. They love it. They can't get enough of it. Right. And that's what I think draws a lot of people to cities nowadays. Um, I don't know why, but this RFK speech has been on my mind a lot lately. So I'm going to direct my next question. I'm going to set it up a little bit. So I have a friend and I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not going to name this person, who recently, and I had not seen this friend in many, many years, but he was talking about living in New Jersey, how his daughter, who was top of her class, could not get into any of the schools, Ivy League schools that she got it, she applied to. And he blamed affirmative action. And I was kind of taken aback by this. And he talked about why do we have to keep making amends for things that happened hundreds of years ago? And this is a this is a line of questioning or Pushback I hear from, unfortunately, too many uh, Asian Pacific Islander folks, especially East Asian. And I'm sure you've heard that argument before. But when you hear that, you know, Leah, especially like for you first and then Richard, how often do you hear that argument? And what would you say in response to something like that? I heard a metaphor recently that Isabel Wilkerson wrote, I believe, in Cast, that um, it's like you move into a house with a cracked foundation and you don't get to the house and then say, Oh, well, it wasn't me that cracked it. I'm not going to fix it. Right. You bring in the you know professionals you need to make your house safe and secure and stable. Um, even though you weren't around when the crack happened. And that's sort of how I see this argument that we're living with the consequences of policies from decades ago that were unconstitutional, that, continue to affect how we live today and what our life chances are, sort of our life outcomes, you know, are impacted um, differently by race, by these racialized policies of the past. And just because those policies are in the past and I wasn't around when they were enacted, doesn't mean I don't have some obligation to right. remedy those today and and address the consequences that we're still living with. And affirmative action is one of the ways of doing that. Um, and I, I just, we sort of, especially because, you know, the housing segregation and residential segregation was created by unconstitutional government policies, we have an obligation to remedy them and to, to do something about it, to 
reverse the policies that are still in effect and the consequences of those policies, remedy those consequences today. Um, we don't get off the hook just because they happened a long time ago. Yeah. Um, just like, you know, we're not off the hook with living with the consequences of those policies. Yeah, exactly. Richard, I actually, you know, going back to my RFK thing, he talked about, you know, because there's a lot of people that want to take action and you address all these great steps. But what uh, RFK speaks about is the, he calls them four civic dangers, things that people should be aware of that will impact our ability to be a, a country with democratic principles and like a country that serves all. And he says those four things are the danger of futility. Like, you know, I can't make a difference. Expediency. Like, let's just do the thing that's quickest and not worry about, you know, something greater. Timidity uh, being too, you know, there's a whole chapter about being bold, right. And, and being daring and then comfort, you know, like things are really good right now. Like I'm living a good life. Why am I going to bother doing something out of those four, Richard, what do you think, what do you think is the biggest danger or obstacle for people nowadays in terms of doing something that actually impacts and changes, you know, these rules around segregation? Well, let me say first, and uh, one of them I don't think is an impediment. Um, let me guess, expediency. That's right. That's yep. right. I, I saw your, your, your interview, so I was, I was wondering if that would be true. So, okay. exactly right. What we emphasize in just action is that uh, small victories lead to bigger ones. When people win small victories, they gain confidence that they can win bigger ones. And uh, one of the things that uh, makes it more difficult to do this is if people think they have to win the big ones first. In just action, we describe, as I said, dozens of policies and programs at a local level that reinforce and sustain segregation. And um, I would start by tackling the ones that we can win mm -hmm. in any community. They differ. One of the things we say in just action is that it doesn't matter where you start as long as you start somewhere. So that's one that uh, I don't think is an impediment. I think uh, that that's an advantage is to be it's a strategy, yeah, to take a small victory and build on it rather than trying to go for the, the impossible to win ones first. Um, but uh, the first one you mentioned, uh, I forget the term you used, but it was uh, futility. Yeah. Futility, yes. Um, I think it relates to what we were just talking about. If you're willing to begin with winnable victories, it will build confidence to um, take on greater ones. As, as you said earlier, I think uh, uh, the um, you know writing the color of law made me hopeful, <clears throat> not futile. Because so long as we thought that segregation happened by accident, it was natural to think that the only way it can be undone is by accident. Once we understood that it was created by explicit public policy, it creates hope that explicit public policy can reverse it. So um, I think that that's a, an impediment, but the impediment will be minimized if um, you uh, focus on initially on winnable smaller victories than on um, trying to take on the more difficult ones at the beginning. Mm. Yes, sir. Uh, Leah, do you, how about you? Do you have a, uh, one of these that you think is a, a big obstacle more now than others? And I can recount them for you if you need to. That's okay. I think I, I'm going to be annoying and not pick one, but I think there's some combination where we think that um, it should be easy and there, there should be one solution that will sort of do everything we want to do. Um, like a silver bullet policy that will reverse all of these old, old older policies and get us where we want to go. And if we can't have that, then why bother with these smaller incremental changes. And um, I think that really gets in our way because there isn't one thing. There's a lot of a lot of things that we can do that will all together um, contribute to creating the change that we need to make. Um, and so if we're stopped by sort of, I don't know, my dad has a quote that I can't remember about perfection sort of being the... The enemy uh, of good. Don't let the... Yeah, it's even prefer. better than that. Oh, it's <laughs> even better remember. than that. I need to hear this. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like if we're waiting for the perfect thing to do anything, we'll be waiting forever. And so we just need to start with, with the, 
what we can achieve right now, which is a lot, and and start moving ahead that way. Using the Marshall Gans framework, you know, we talked about stories of self. You introduce your stories. We talked about the story of us, you know, what's happening in our backyard, the book that you've written. Uh, and I want to talk about the story of now, which is what do we continue to keep doing forward? And at Civic Commons, we launched the Black Home Initiative. It's about two years old. And in that initiative is the idea to create generational wealth within the African-American Black community that we are pushing to have in the next five years. I believe it's the next five years. 1,500 new low to moderate income Black homeowners in South Seattle, South King County, North Pierce County. And we pulled together an 80, uh, we have 80 nonprofit, philanthropic, private government partners uh, who are not just trying to drive up supply, but to actually drive systems change. You know, rallying this group together to push against structural and institutional forces that are happening. I know that you both are speaking at an event uh, hosted by us uh, coming up this week or next week. And so I'm really excited about that. But if you had this group of 80 organizations and partners in the room together, you know, home ownership is definitely important and that's a huge driver. But what would be the next step? What would you kind of um, extol them to do uh, after that if we are successful? And maybe Richard, you can go first and Leah can jump in afterwards. Well, I want to emphasize again uh, what we said earlier, and that is we wouldn't have advice for them. Anything they do next would be a good thing to do if it's appropriate to the interests of their membership, if it's um, something that's appropriate for the particular issues in their community. As I said, we've, we talk about dozens of policies and programs that reinforce segregation. We divide them into two major groups. One are programs that improve resources in existing low-income segregated neighborhoods. In uh, the housing industry, those are called place-based policies. And the other group is uh, programs that open up as uh, existing exclusive communities to diverse residents. We've talked about that before in the housing field. That's, those are called mobility programs. And um, there are so many of them. And we discuss things in, in the first group. We discuss uh, ways to support renters, uh, to uh, make them more secure in their rentals, and particularly in gentrifying neighborhoods where they're in danger of being uh, pushed out. There are ways to protect them from that. Um, we talk about uh, the creation and how to create land trusts in both urban and suburban communities that provide additional housing opportunities. We describe how, and this is a purely local issue, the discriminatory nature of the tax assess, property tax assessment system, which has a big impact on the, the incomes and wealth of African-American homeowners who pay higher property taxes than whites do for homes of similar value. We talk about... Um, using the Section 8 program, uh, both to uh, uh, eliminate discrimination in the uh, uh, use of those uh, vouchers, and also as a way of um, using them for home ownership. So there are so many things that can be done at a local level, uh, and it's really, uh, I would never presume to tell uh, your group what they should do next but I would give them in just action a long list of things from which they can choose and to see where uh, they think they might best go next. Yeah, it's a great shopping cart of uh, ideas and places to, to move this. You know, it's just one in our region to get this many partners from across sectors to be interested in this work and not just interested, but really all we're doing is shepherding the process, right? We're, not, we're also not telling them what to do. We have a goal. They've signed on to the goal, but really the, the group is leading it, right? It's not us. We're just kind of helping facilitate that move forward. And there are lots. And then, you know, I saw the, the idea of like, my friend used to work for the King County assessor. And once I, you know, I was totally un, you know, unaware of all the, the mechanisms that drive housing, section eight vouchers. You can't use them as particular places. Why are you know low-income housing mostly built in communities of color? Why aren't they built all throughout the region? Uh, there's so many things that you know were opened up to me 
as I joined government and I learned more about these things. And so you're right. There's a lot of things that people can focus their energy on, but I'm really excited just about the partnerships we built across sectors. And I think that's really powerful. Um, Leah, maybe not in the same vein as telling us what to do, but is there something that maybe you're really excited about that, you know, you've seen something similar happen in other places, or is there something maybe you're like, Hey, this is a kind of a cool idea. What would you, what would, why don't you, why don't you think about this? Hmm. Well, yeah, I would say that there's a lot that this amazing coalition could do together. You know, the, the laundry list of, of issues my dad named off and what's in our book. There's also all of your coalition members are a organization, a business, uh, an entity that in itself can take actions internally to address these issues as well. Banks could start special purpose credit programs that can provide loans and down payment assistance targeted by race. Realtors can offer pro bono representation to home buyers and sellers who are African-American or contribute to down payment assistance funds. Philanthropy can devote their resources to Section 8 mobility programs that help Section 8 tenants move to higher opportunity areas. So there's a lot that they can do together. And then there's also, um, it shouldn't stop them from looking internally and seeing what they can do within their own entity as well. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of banks that are signed up local and national, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of lending practices that can be reformed or changed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I remember um, you all talked about in uh your books is that, and let me get, make sure I get this right. Oh, the idea that, you know, when your property taxes are due, a lot of communities of color don't realize that this may happen to them. If they don't pay their taxes, then they're going to foreclose on their home. They're going to lose their home. Is that there is a specific community where the United Way was actually notified each time something like this happened. Maybe, maybe if you can, I might have the story wrong, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would love to kind of have you just use that as an example before sure. we close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, that's two ideas together, but they're related or they can be. So uh, we talked about in Cleveland, Ohio, that the United Way and the Legal Aid Society there joined forces uh, under a right to counsel program for lower income tenants who are being faced with eviction. Often when tenants get an eviction notice, they often don't show up to their eviction hearing in court because they don't know what to do or don't think they have recourse. And they often don't because landlords show up with representation and judges like rubber stamp their um, their eviction orders often. And so it doesn't make sense for tenants to show up and maybe they can't because they have to work. So um, the Cleveland started a right to counsel program that offered free representation to low income tenants facing an eviction. And had, and the United Way helped with that by um, reaching out to every tenant. They got a list of those being served in eviction and reached out to those tenants to let them know about this benefit. And um, they got the tenants with their eviction notice, got a notification that they had a right to an attorney. And with that representation, it changed a lot of the outcomes. I think it was 90% then didn't have an eviction um, order. Or you got money back. And a lot of them, the attorneys helped them find resources to pay, pay their back rent so they didn't, the eviction was then cleared. Um, so that's a great program that can be replicated everywhere. And what we talk about with the property tax lien situation is um, those are, that's for homeowners when they miss property tax payments often. So that's a local government um, wants to collect that property tax to pay their local services. And um, if they don't get their property taxes paid, they put a lien on the house. And sometimes local governments will sell those liens to investors at an auction. An investor will buy the lien for the amount that the government is owed and then have the right to collect that debt from the homeowner with huge interest rates and sort of fees that you can't tell what they're for. When the homeowner can't pay those, the investor can then foreclose on their home and, um, the homeowner loses all the equity that they had built in their home. And then the investor then often sells the home at a higher price to someone else. So what we suggest is one way that a local community group could help to stave off this outcome is if something like the United Way could find out who's uh, 
who's overdue on property taxes mm -hmm. and help them know that this is an outcome and help them access, you know, there's some benefits for some communities have property tax deferral programs or exemptions and help make sure that they can get current on their property taxes so that this doesn't happen. And that's, right. that's one suggestion we have for solving that property tax lien issue, um, which is sort of replicating what they have done in Cleveland around evictions for tenants, but helping ensure that homeowners don't have that same outcome through the property tax lien process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all these solutions and these, uh, these um, ways to prevent, you know, folks from losing their housing is a multi uh, institutional approach, right? It's not just United Way. It's like the the, the Cleveland Law Clinic, the, the Legal Aid Society, mm -hmm. it's government. It's a lot of different actors have to come together a lot of times. And you're right, you know, a bank can look at their lending practices and make changes, but the power of a network is actually really powerful. You know, the United mm -hmm. Way is part of our network here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's definitely a step in the right direction. Well, I just want to use the last section of the podcast, which we do for all our guests, is a chance to amplify or augment anything that you have going on. Obviously, we're going to pitch the book. We'll talk about it in the description. Uh, but is there anything else uh, that you want to pitch yourselves? Uh, Richard, maybe you first and Leah, follow up. We also have a, a column on Substack that is free uh, that updates in the issues in the book uh, based with lots of um, as we interview people and find people doing different things, we, we write about them and, and give examples that we hope will offer people uh, models of things that they can do, as well as the many examples we give in the book of people who are actually making progress in these areas. Yeah, no, and we'll definitely put a link to that Substack so that people can uh, subscribe. Great. Yeah, so that Substack is justaction.substack.com. Um, we also have a website for the book, justactionbook.org. You can find out about our appearances around the country or contact us that way. You can also find the Substack through that website. And we'll be in Seattle on November 2nd at 2 p.m., Seattle University. Um, so encourage folks to come out. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for spending, spending time with us to, to give up this little bit of time to talk on the podcast. And we look forward to hosting you here in Seattle in a few days. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.